This episode is sponsored by Anchor.fm. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. So let me explain. Basically, it's free. Secondly, there's creation tools that allow you to record and also edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. And after which, Anchor will automatically distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other platforms. You can also make money from your podcast with literally no minimum listenership. So it's everything you basically need in a podcast in one place. So go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started today. It gives me anxiety. I don't want to see this shit. I, I, <laughs> no, no, it gives me anxiety. Okay, no. I'll pull it later. I'm sorry, I'm <laughs> hey, my name is Sanjana Singh, and this is the Naked Dada podcast. Um, enjoy the ride. You're welcome. Hey, Abraham, what's up? Hey, what, what is this? Where, where am I speaking? You haven't given me any context so far. The context being we're on a podcast. It's called The Naked Dialogue and you're the first um, guest. So why did you choose me as your first guest? Because you're a close friend and I think that's a good enough <laughs> good enough person to have and you, and you have good ideas and like you're an interesting person in general. So why not? Yeah. Okay, what, what purpose do you see in this podcast? I, I don't know, I just have always loved having this, you know, being able to have a platform where I can just speak and learn more and talk to people, even if it's formal, informal, it doesn't matter. You always learn something out of things. And I don't know, there's something about long-form podcasts, I mean, even a conversation, you know, leave podcasts alone. I feel like you can just talk and exchange and learn. Because every time you meet a new person and if you do like long form podcast with them, you get to know a lot of it, a lot of them, a lot of their ideas. And you get to also kind of like think about the ideas you have in relation to their ideas. It's, I don't know, I feel, I feel like I really like the idea of, you know, having long form conversations. So what relevance does having a medium such as a cybernetic one like podcasting have to producing some sort of value by way of exchanging you know, beliefs and, and opinions about, about reality. What is that phenomenon and why is it so valuable? Why are we so lucky to be able to cherish it at a, at a digitalized and democratized level? I feel like it's, it's a complex way to you know, answer that because podcasting has become more, it was more of a digital thing, but I feel like it's more cultural and digital thing now because it's it's so embedded in culture be it you know what we call broadly as pop culture it's a part of uh, entertainment it's part of knowledge it's part of it's part of yeah, everything but what is the essential phenomenon going on it's uh, i see it as a sort of philosophy of conversation mm-hmm. a conversation has a a space a topos to mm-hmm. it and as a realm of of influxes of information why is that information valuable because information is power the ultimate power is knowledge and so what's the essence of doing this would be 
able to, first of all, gather new information out of people, then being able to communicate um, different topics, talk about different topics, and stuff like that with other people, and learn every single time. So that's the whole essence. I know it's quite broad. No, but it clearly has a communal aspect of... Sharing ideas. Yeah of, yeah, of creating a platform where people can can bond over over discourse and over over having dialectics yeah, with, with themselves. Uh, but it's, it, it also becomes a sort of marketplace for ideas, and, and mm-hmm. it has an economy behind it. And I mean, this has, I, I think, the, the more essential implications being rooted to how society functions and what a, an intellectual circle can, can contribute to society. Um, because obviously we all benefit as, uh, as learners, but what can a, the phenomenon of an intellectual circle of any academia mm-hmm. in, the, in the proper sense of the word have on society? That, is, that, that would be where I'd be more interested in, in routing this conversation. No, that's definitely interesting because what we see in academia right now, at least from what I see on the, on the video platforms, or, or just, like, just like probably the internet, is that the academia is trying to, you know, I, I wouldn't say market because market is such a com- commercial word, but, you know, it's the way to distribute ideas, <laughs> especially like long form ideas, because like you, you can read papers online, you can read articles online, but what people are more interested in is having a person sit in front of you and explain it to you, give it to you straight. I mean, you can keep on reading the document and get to the end of it, but there's another level of understanding you would gain from it virtually in this in this situation watching a person talk. And so that's how academia is trying to distribute their own ideas and knowledge and new theories. Like, geometry Kennedy like even if it's if even if Weinstein doesn't publish it it's already out there it's published in a virtual way yeah yeah what we're talking about is a vast cornucopia of ideas that have been digitalized into different mm-hmm. mediums and there is clearly the within academia that's what we're discussing in the in the university term and, the, and also having a a reservoir of, of wisdom, those ideas get transliterated uh, into, into text and, and, and get memorized by mm-hmm. these institutions through that medium. And through the cybernet, we, we do have access to them. And it, it goes the same for the virtual ghosts that, that still exist of people that have died long ago that, that were brilliant thinkers and that we had the privilege of, of recording them. Um, but having this, this cornucopia and this vast wealth quantitatively does not seem to have an effect on how much smarter society has become. And I think that's, that's a worry. Why aren't people spending their whole days in libraries with the range of information that has been discovered uh, up to today? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a tragedy, and, 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 you know, and it makes no sense if we consider ourselves intelligent humans, homo sapiens, mm-hmm. of, of, of knowledge. 
Yeah, but it's also knows. the... Uh, uh, the Homo sapiens is, is the animal who knows. Why True. aren't why don't we know all that we supposedly know at a sociological level through what thinkers have discovered? It, it, I think that it, it's a lack of investing into precisely the, the sorts of conversations that we're trying to have right now, which is mm-hmm. a sort of intellectual discourse, a dialectic, um, a, a an exchange of ideas in in a forum which fosters some some type of, of community feeling with uh, obviously the, the help from the cybernet so I, I think I, I think one thing that I want to get out of this conversation is a, a better narrowing down of of the conceptualization of whatever phenomenon is occurring right now and, and it's it's societal ramifications mm-hmm. I feel like it's the accessibility component or element or trait you know, in, in when we take virtuality in one side and reality in the other, I feel like what strains us away from reality is the accessibility of virtuality because it's so accessible, everything's there. Why go to a library when I have a Kindle? It's just that question. Well, what I meant by the library was more of a metaphor. Mm-hmm. The, the same problem still exists when homo sapiens encounter a hyper-saturated artifact uh, of, of knowledge and mm-hmm. still don't interact with it in order to extract all that it has. Mm-hmm. Even if you have a Kindle out of your hand's reach, you won't be reading it constantly, discovering all of the mysteries and, and wonders and measurements of every aspect of the world. Mm-hmm. Now, that's completely true. I mean, obviously, you're not going to get the full reading and thinking experience out of virtuality itself because it's virtual it's not paper i mean that's for sure but my, my worry goes is 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 at the point in which a, a human decides to incorporate this information with them it's an ethical choice really to mm-hmm. determine to love information love knowledge and seek for it and, and, and want to be satiated by it and clearly the, the forms which we can intake are text, videos, podcasts on YouTube now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, books on, on, in the library or, or, or printed pages, but we still don't read them. We still don't go to those libraries. We still don't click those links that we have saved in our tabs that could give us so much information. Mm-hmm. Why don't we take the step ahead to vigorously... Um, culture ourselves and you know it, it obviously applies by degrees but um, for someone who is attempting to be a literati or who considers himself to be one um, even the intellectual could read that much more so why why isn't everyone doing this at, at some degree of, or another for basic education or or an advanced specialized Field specialized one. Uh, I think I think that's a strange mystery that that we are in potency potentially omniscient, but we, that we decide not to profit of the the bountiful resources of, of data and information and knowledge and, and wisdom that we have in in, in representations and texts and in videos and stories. Mm-hmm. 
No, that's true. I mean, where do you stand on super intelligence? And AI, but not not the general AGI, mm. the artificial super intelligence. So the, the artificial general intelligence has its limit in which we will still be able to perceive at, at which point of computation it's reached. And mm -hmm. I'm not sure if that's uh, accurate or not, but I, I guess it's a good enough threshold to start with. If what superintelligence entails is a completely transhumanistic formation of what spirit uh, could hold in a functioning entity at, at, a, at purely phenomenological level, not even discussing whether it has a soul or a sentient or whether it even sees a difference between outside and inside reality. So we can just put it at, a, at an intermediate point of not necessarily... Um, having a mind, but still acting as if it had one. Um, well, that would imply that we would we would see the nearly unimaginable, or what is now the the unheard of, the unseen. We would see the unseen. Whichever form it takes is. And anticlimactic and, uh, you know, might not be as science fiction-y or as revolutionary as we expect, but um, the amount of, of quantity uh, that it can produce will be, you know, will not, will not have any point of comparison in the universe, arguably. We can take a pause. <laughs> Fucking <laughs> Wait. <coughs> Good. I'll, I'll restart from my, my the thesis that I was just getting into, which was my real standing on on superintelligence. Mm -hmm. If I stand anywhere in relation to superintelligence, it's it's not in, in knowledge of, of how it will work as I've tried to sort of outline here um, uh, roughly. Superintelligence relative to an anthropocentrism or not will account for the maximum amount of complexity that the universe has potentially encountered. And, you know, we have to think about it in the sense that humans, by creating technology, are nothing more than an extension of nature that we are still part of nature in, in creating ecosystems and ecologies by way of our, of our technology, and it'll repeat under the same substrate of, of nature in itself throughout whatever technology creates that phenomenon, projecting into the future the possibility of still having new knowledge, of novelty existing. The case of superintelligence assures us then that every aspect of the unknown can be revealed. No, that's completely 100% true. But, so, would it be fair for me to say that you you kind of share the same ideas about ASI, um, like Elon Musk? You're optimistic about it. And you don't want to be... And you try to avoid 
like you're careful with it just like Elon Musk is usually when he starts to talk about AI but you're also optimistic about it Ben Gertzel who uh, is the head of Hans Robotics and he he's consistent in the belief that if AI goes somewhere it, it will successfully be able to integrate a compassionate morality because that at least from his uh, axiological viewpoint, is the end goal of, uh, of humans to be compassionate, enlightened, and, and, and holistic with, with the world in harmony with all. And so the, the event of the superintelligence going against human morality is incompatible with the type of intelligence that we're talking about, which it might be closer to to wisdom uh, since the the entity which is this robot has to both learn it and apply the knowledge that that it, that it learns I feel like there was someone whistling there. <laughs> I feel like definitely caught it. ADHD. And and then there was a fucking horn. Did you hear that too? No. Like the ambulance thing. I didn't hear that. Okay. No, we can always keep on going. I can edit that. Yeah. You should put timestamps. Yeah, that would be. Yeah, that's a new feature on YouTube anyway. The police, Freud, commented on many of the elements of, of the psyche incipiently without really knowing what, what, what structure he was forming to understand it. He was a police structuralist, of course. And so he would indicate many embryonic ideas. And one of them was the principle of inertia is known as the principle of psychical inertia. And this is elemental to his theory of libido and, and the libidinal economy that, that is essentially a psychical force that runs through the body and is, is composed of instinct and, and spirit and mind. And the, the semiotic connection here is that the inertia is dependent on different signifiers which are connected in the chain, as Rakhal would illustrate it, in the unconscious that dominate your conscious life. And what is more consciously con unconscious than, than your body? That it moves around without it being dictated fully by your free will when one wiggles their fingers when speaking, that is all related to whichever chain of signifiers are floating underneath you. And whichever psychical dynamos of thoughts, feelings, and concepts are centrifuging in your mind at certain instances, which, depending on, on whatever uh, 
dynamo on whatever uh, symbol, whatever super image composed together, thrown together as the etymology of symbol composes, which is simbale, which is to throw together. Um, whatever idea one is having at that moment in relation to the, the dynamo that I was speaking to earlier, that we might call whichever signifier gets prodded out. And depending on the, the signifier's relation to the subject's past, it will have a desire to not be fully seen or not be fully formulated at a symbolic or imaginary level, meaning that the mental representation will not be richer in detail but poorer and, and, and foggy to see. And symbolically, the person will, will have difficulty describing it because it is the real. The body is the real, but, but it's also the unconscious in movement. And so to tolerate the real, what the body does essentially is, is, is move upon these things. This is the principle of inertia, that neurological energy has to be discharged through the body. And the explanation for that is that of the signifier and how they relate to, to the subject and its phenomenological description, which is the idea and, and how different ideas have different associations uh, to people. I mean, I like the part where you said that what's a human other than the unconscious and the conscious. Did I get that right? You said that. No, what is, what is more human? consciously unconscious in oh, okay. the body? All right, you say that the, well, what was the real for you? The real is that which escapes symbolization and, and which blurries paintings of, of, uh, of your inner. And where would you put it in conscious and the unconscious? It's both, but, um, but the unconscious and the real are, are almost synonymous. <laughs> yeah, so I guess that was a very good um, insight on an informal psychoanalytic, you know, setting that we have here in 21st century. But I don't know. Tell me why do you love philosophy, thinking? Why do you see yourself being attracted towards such a deeper level of thinking? The why as to my my obsession with knowledge or, or learning or understanding, I'm not sure of, but it's clear that it's been uh, a guiding guiding point of my life, that of, uh, of wanting to learn and, and understand more, and, and usually that being connected to, to abstract ideas such as what is reality, what is truth, mm -hmm. or what is language, what are concepts, what is learning, what is understanding. Yeah, so you're a truth searcher. I think that these terms, such as philosophy, or, or truth, 
seek for a seeker or, or a scientist or learner or, you know even sage or, or all these uh, sorts of societal roles that are connected to someone having knowledge and are up to question just like the university just like academia as such just because we've recognized them to, to hold some sort of knowledge it doesn't mean that they really have it so I don't know if my interest is philosophy per se. If anything, I, I take the ideas and the thinkers that have been categorized as philosophers or that have at least contributed to philosophical thinking as mm -hmm. tools for, for my model of understanding existence and, and reality, which I take very seriously. And also for creation. Also as a, as a, tool yes for not only understanding but uh, to to create an assemblage of ideas for me to use them as as my creative substrate I'm loving this. I'm sorry that I can't be. No, it's chill. It's it's the first sense. one, you know. It's supposed yeah. to. <laughs> no, no, but I want it fucking crystal clean. Yeah, so no, we can edit in the fuck. Crystal design. <laughs> I, I I want it smooth. I want it professional, flawless. Yeah. No, no edges uncut. And we're back. <laughs> so yeah, you were saying that you have a pretty good understanding of history of philosophy. Why is that? From pretty young days, probably because you were studying it in high school, as I understand. I did. I did study the history of philosophy in high school, but you know, I guess that peripherally made me need a temporal historical structure to understand the ideas that I was coming across because. Well, the type of, of studies that I that I took were very essentialistic, and the theory of knowledge that was being communicated to me was more of an exposition of a philosophy of mind. In some sense, it was a very rudimentary introduction to the possibility of knowing knowledge and how do we know knowledge. But there, in, in no sense, was there a projection to why we know knowledge, which I think is the pragmatist term that many philosophers take if they are a good one. I think that is what designs an original philosopher, that there is a pragmatic output at the end in a, in a very Jewish way. So, <laughs> and, and the Semitic association that I make is because of the Tikkun Adamic motive that, that reformist Judaism has incorporated into their canon. Um, and what it, what it treats is a practical ethic of repairing the world and, and restoring the world. And so an original uh, philosopher does not only fix an issue, a pragmatic issue in society after diagnosing it, or at minimum after pointing out the symptom, offers an alternative. It doesn't mean that, you know, he, he completes the, the, the change he wanted to make. So 
Um, Marx is correct in saying that a philosophy should change something, but it doesn't always happen. So, I mean, the, the, the philosopher has to be good enough to offer plausible alternatives. That is the minimum requirement. We'll see if, if it'll commit a change or not in society and make him the best philosopher or the truest of philosophers. Because mm -hmm. that, that, that is another criterion that the philosophy of philosopher changes the world. The repairing or restoration of the world that is the, the essence of the Tikkunanamic Modo uh, can be seen reflected in, in what a philosopher uh, has to do and what many thinkers have done, which is to uphold the names of those great thinkers before them that they're standing on the shoulders of. And, uh, I think a, a reasonable balance of that and, uh, and an original plane of coherence, as Deleuze would say, as well as a practical social reformist output, those three components are what give a lot of credibility, rigorosity, and, and value to, to an original philosophy. Because there, there can be many original philosophies that are useless. So what is an original philosophy to you? I just gave the explanation. So what is transcendence to you? Because like transcendence could be a lot of philosophers talk about transcendence in all different sorts of com contexts, but still kind of related to each other. What is transcendence? The meaning of a word. I think when, when people use transcendence, they usually mean some sort of out-of-body experience or, you know, some sort of mystical... Esoteric, maybe? Esoteric yeah. uh, encounter. The question of what is transcendence, philosophically speaking, is a degree of, of logic or an existing reality that can somehow explain whatever reality is, in, in some sense. The transcendence is compatible with our reality. If not, it wouldn't be transcendent and originative of what it has transcended. So, um, transcendence needs to transcend something, and that thing that it transcends must be retroactively um, applicable to, to transcendence once it's transcended. Um, mm -hmm. So, that, what that means is that transcendence and immanence are the same exact essence. So, transcendence is not that big of a deal, in my view. It's mm -hmm. just a, a way of signifying the the degree of relativism that um, the epistemology can have, meaning that uh, a transcendental existentialism might take on the free will of Seth well beyond the agency that he talked about, but to a omniscient godhood in the mind at large. Mm -hmm. That so. Um, I think that transcendence is, by definition, anything that transcends uh, physical reality. And, mm -hmm. and practically speaking, that is the imagination. And if we want mm -hmm. to extrapolate it to um, 
where transcendence can exist. Um, it, that depends on your state of consciousness, which is in epistemology as well as in ontology together. So technically we are in transcendence already. Mm -hmm. um, and if, if you were to equate your state of mind with that, um, technically you'd be in a transcendent state. Who knows how many ranges of consciousness there are. Um, so I mean, what matters is that there is imminence, at least in the dual ego uh, level. So clearly there, there's a spectrum and uh, the dichotomization between imminence and transcendence is an illusion because fundamentally it all exists within, within the same topos, which is the infinity of existence. Mm -hmm. um, so we can take on imminence, which is material reality to a, a another sort of conception, which would be to see it as, as imaginary. In other words, whatever our empirical uh, epistemologies are composed out of might as well be so arbitrary to be composed out of something that is imaginary and that can be akin to transcendence itself. Um, transcendence is not exactly alterity. It's not exactly otherly. Transcendence is, is virtuality and potential. How you said philosophy game? Yeah, it's 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 the it's studying the, the sociology of ideas between thinkers, mm -hmm. and and it's a game to do it and and to see, you know, how are texts written, how are ideas exchanged from thinker to thinker over generations. Mm -hmm. And so, where do you stand on art? Because I know that you you would define yourself like a bit of an artist too. Yeah, I, I studied mm -hmm. art in my high school education. In fact, I, I dropped my business course in order to enter art. Art as a concept of, or as art as the, the artist, the, the figure of the artist. Yeah, it's like embodying the artist. Um, well, the artist that I... Uh, at a cultural level has connotations with the nightlife, you know, which has become something very common nowadays among our generation, you know, to go mm -hmm. clubbing. What is the, the aspect of, of the, of the social spheres at that degree? Um, you know, spending time vagabonding around cities at 4am in the morning, mm -hmm. um, meeting new people meeting strange people, 
that's all part of, of I think, the a, a pretty conventional or basic level of interaction with with other artists, which are presumably mm -hmm. high in openness to new experiences. Mm -hmm. And so, it, I mean, it is no surprise if if I hang out with with people that fit the profile of an artist that I might consider myself one. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So do you think like being a philosopher in 21st century and also having that kind of like an artistic um, character or whatever to your entire persona, do you think a philosopher in a very esoteric and mystical way is also an artist? Yeah, I think that there is uh, a high degree of similarity between the archetypes of the artist, the poet, the philosopher, the mystic. Mm -hmm. I think what they all have in common is creation at a, at a subjective level. Mm -hmm. Yes, they are authors of of their creativity and and direct it for the purpose of of creating objects of of, of beauty. And, and admiration by society. So the reason I, I mention the the creation of an invention is because it has some sort of purpose usually mm -hmm. in this this sort of creativity in, in all of the archetypes. Um, there the commonality is is both the encountering of knowledge that transcends the the layman's uh, epistemology whatever that may mean and and transcend into these worlds to recollect information and bring it back to the exoteric realm mm -hmm. in, in re-represented ways so what would be the layman's epistemology it's it's well represented or or manifest in academia nowadays there are many laymen in, in academia believe it or not Mm -hmm. And those are the naive materialists. And naive is not meant in any pejorative way. It's the best way to describe their ontological belief, which is in a direct materialism. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that, that is what science, of course, ascribes to. And conventionally, culturally, science is at the top of the hierarchy of truth and has crowned itself as its queen. Yeah, because it's the objective. Over. It's more the more of the objective. It's the objective. Science looks for the objective. Even though the observers are subjective. Mm -hmm. So that's where I see a flaw sometimes when people discuss quantum mechanics and like observers and stuff like that. I always find the whole observers thing subjective. Because even if you're trying to quantify the phenomena or the experience or whatever you are trying to uh, study, being an observer kind of inherently, inherently implies that you're a subjective person trying to look for objectives, but ultimately what you, what you conclude is subjective. The philosopher is also a scientist, but that's, that's mm -hmm. only if you discern from the the common usage of, of science nowadays which is culturally embedded in, in how it's represented in, in the university as this you know materialist functionalist way of looking at reality um instead of a deepening of all aspects of 
the mind and matter. Mm-hmm. A, a true science, unpolluted by the reductionism that we live in nowadays, that, mm-hmm. which is, is clearly seen with neuroscience, thinking that that can explain the quality and, and richness that a direct experience with reality that is consciousness can give mm-hmm. us is, of course, a flaw and, and an example of how we have failed to to reach, you know, a, a, an appropriate discourse that says that science should also explore subjectivity. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think that that's that's an, that's an issue that that science does that. In fact, a purist scientist is a phenomenologist. Okay, tell me more about what you think of consciousness. So, the place to start with would be an ontological standpoint. That, that is what we would be actually be discussing here. That is what, how consciousness can be equated in any way. Mm-hmm. And some may say that I'm making a metaphysical argument, but, you know, I... I I would, I would ascribe to epistemology being able to describe ontology perfectly. Consciousness exists, first of all, mm-hmm. and that consciousness is all. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I say that we step into the waters of metaphysics is because I would also say that consciousness is oneness, and all is oneness, and consciousness is existence as well. And so you're more of the hermetic thought. The all, because you I, use I prefer, the all. I prefer just conceptualizing that that type of thinking as metaphysical idealism. Um, okay. I think that's a good enough mm-hmm. label, um, because I, I I don't necessarily extrapolate it to theosophical superstitions, mm-hmm. but mm, I think that that a fundamental phenomenology, the mind at large is the substance of, of reality. And that is what, what consciousness might as well be thought of mm-hmm. if we divorce the idea of mind and consciousness. And so if consciousness is what composes all mm-hmm. and all exists, mm-hmm. then existence is, is a, a, pluralist, a, a pluralist manifestation of the same thing. If all is consciousness and all is, is, is existence, then all is the same. So a consciousness, apart from having this ontological status of existing and we being in it and all entities forming part of it and being parts of that whole, mm-hmm. has a isomorphic effect within us, which is that we are also that. We are consciousness as such. Mm-hmm. And so that would be a, 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 a sort of Spinozian view. Mm-hmm. No, it's interesting you bring up Spinoza because where do you stand on seeing everything is, I mean, because the all, because if everything is consciousness, then objects have consciousness too. Not necessarily. Um, but imagine consciousness would be. Having consciousness, is, I think, is still trapped within the, the anthropocentric view or, or the the conceiving of consciousness as human consciousness. Mm-hmm. So we're discussing consciousness here as an ontic phenomenon. Which and what is the ontic phenomenon? That 
it's well above any level of cognition. And so it, it envelops cognition and, is in, and cognition is integrated within it and it completes those functions, mm-hmm. but is irrelevant to whatever our cognition may be. That is, that is the, the realist approach to a fundamentalist approach to consciousness. Mm-hmm. When Sartre talks about perception and imagination and imaging consciousness, it's almost as if he tries to establish that there's that the object has some kind of consciousness through the perception and through our you know our imaging it as an object. So he tries to say in a very indirect manner, almost as if the object has a consciousness or has a semi consciousness. So um Seth is, is clearly a Cartesian mm-hmm. and his view that you placing intentionality onto an object may give that object intentionality is not incompatible with the belief that whatever that thing you're looking at is already consciousness. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter if that thing has consciousness, it already is consciousness. Mm-hmm. At, at, at the level of discussion that I, I introduced, what consciousness may be at the fundamental ontology that, that it is, mm-hmm. it is irrespective of whatever a human psych phenomenal phenomenological or uh, uh, empirical psychology may may constitute Mm -hmm. meaning that meaning that if seth starts with the querying subject having doubts about reality it's only seeing an object and saying oh Mm -hmm. i have consciousness and i sort of through this intentional phenomenality, I revitalize this object. That's, I mean, that's more poetic than anything. It's already in consciousness. It already has consciousness because it is consciousness. There's Mm -hmm. no distinction between you intervening in reality and giving that object consciousness because that object was already in consciousness to start with. And so the subject and the object were already dissolved before Seth's questioning started. There, there was no point at which Seth had more of a consciousness than the object he was looking at. They are mm-hmm. both consciousness. So this gives my argument a quasi solipsistic, subjectivist, hyper relativist edge, mm-hmm. which is okay. That's that's mm-hmm. that's the axiom from which I'm I'm discussing consciousness from because it's what makes the most sense to whatever consciousness as both a, a psychology and an ontology may, may constitute. Mm-hmm. So an interesting idea came to my mind right now. What if there are levels of consciousness? There are. Yeah, no, but like, so you know how plants have consciousness because they're, they're alive, right? So if plants, and now let's talk about psychedelic plants, because their consciousness has to be different, way different than the normal plant consciousness. And so what level of consciousness do psychedelics possess? Do psychedelic plants possess? Yes. Like a mushroom, for example. Yeah, let's take mushrooms, yeah. That is the, you know, we, can, we could use Rupert Sheldrake's conception of the morphogenetic field in which it's argumented that biological systems are interweaved 
with whatever occurs in time and space surrounding them. And so Terence McKenna would say that since so many people have taken mushrooms that all of the, the psychedelic journeys that every individual had gone through were stored into the species of, of any psilocybin uh, mushroom that existed. Mm-hmm. And so taking the mushroom gives you this enormous archive of Ashkotic records mm-hmm. that have been stashed by each individual that has, has, mm-hmm. has recorded on their trip. Mm-hmm. So in some sense, a, a psychedelic kind of might have a memory if, if, if we are at that level of relativism and we decide to believe that theosophy. What if plants have their con- like consciousness, taking it as a broad term, have a collective unconscious too? Right, that's that's the argument that's being made. Yeah. Which I'm, as I say, I'm open to, but mm-hmm. I, I mean, any metaphysical argument is deemed to be questioned. So I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm ambivalent to it. Yeah, because when you, your consciousness and the plant's consciousness, that is when you're taking mushrooms and you experience this heightened level of consciousness where, you know, elements from your unconscious psyche is coming out as, is projecting on the imagery that the psychedelic is showing you. And so, you know, how, if, if plants can, if plants have consciousness, and if those plants also have psycho psychoactive compounds in it, when we are, you know, kind of tripping on mushrooms or any any classical psychedelic, the level of consciousness we reach being different from the level of consciousness we have in a in a sober state. How much does that affect the way we experience life? Because like when you know that you have a normal perception of the world where everything's fixed. There's the real, and then, you know, there's the imagination that you, uh, you know, put yourself into, that your mind works at. And then, boom, you're experiencing the re- the same reality, but distorted. But also with the elements of your unconscious uh, archetypes, you know. I think that it's not necessarily a distorted version of reality that you're seeing. Yeah, I would say distorted, distorted visual imageries, more or less. It's it's, but it's it's a distorted consciousness. It's not only the mm-hmm. visual precept. Mm-hmm. It's it, it composes your your whole body, your your whole mode of cognition. I think the distinction that you're indicating towards is if we have on one side the twelve Kantian categories that are the ones we usually have floating around in our heads while we walk around and observe reality. And then we have on the other side a, a psychedelicized bonobo observing the jungle, mm-hmm. um, stoned. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, those categories might be refracted, dissolved, transmuted, sublimated, transduced into plenty of other new reconfigurations of these same categories. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, there are uh, degrees of consciousness. And mm-hmm. we're really accustomed as humans to mm-hmm. this dual ego world, subject, object, personality, others, uh, reality. Um, 
or, or compositions of worlds of, of our inner and outside world. We're used to kind of this level of functioning. But of course, even within that, there are degrees of, there are infinite degrees of, of flavors um, that distinguish different actions and, 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 and phenomena mm -hmm. that, that occur in our lives. And so the delimitation of, of consciousness is, is conditioned heavily by our pre-existing bias of, of being an ego in, in reality. So whatever is outside the ego and, and, and whatever is outside the usual threshold that separates the unconscious, what is known as the bar that, that limits which signifiers can float up to the top um, because of what they are as, as the real, um, I think is limitless. That is the, it's the realm of, of the imaginary put together with the real. We have all these different continents and in every continent we have these different tribes of shamans and they have their own mescaline, DMT, ayahuasca. What if, if we tried to study the collective unconscious archetypes of the plants, psychoactive plants, what if we can get an understanding of, you know, how the entire, like the entire collective unconscious as a whole, rather than it being specific to a culture, to a, to a region, but the planet as a whole. That exists, but because there's a pluralism of collective unconsciousnesses. The, mm -hmm. the uh, ver, Verdgeist in, in German, the, the, the spirit of the world, is one. There, there's any degree of, of entity that can exist. There's any degree of entity that is imaginable can exist. That is the condition of the imaginary. Mm -hmm. and, and that is what a transcendence and consciousness entails that anything that is stored or, or that is a, a resource in the imaginary can be represented. Mm -hmm. That is that's the, that's the functional side of knowing and being. Once you are high on, on entheogenes, mm -hmm. once you are that, you will know whatever depths of recycle you were carved out by, by the new tool that you've encountered in plant. Mm -hmm. So what's even more interesting is that when you have all these unconscious, collective unconscious archetypes from the plant, psychoactive plants, and when you try to identify the archetypes, it's usually geometry, it's usually natural stuff. So five elements of nature, fire, water, all that stuff. So that kind of gives us an understanding of how collective unconscious archetypes work in a global way rather than in a regional or continental way, but also at the same time having some kind of cultural root. No, so that's why that people- is, That is a materialist mm -hmm. edge to it, which is relevant, mm -hmm. which is that yes, our mind being an organic, entity has a, a genealogy with geography and geology um, intrinsically but that is at a knowledge level it's uh, it's within the content of the collective unconscious instead of the framework 
the metaphysical mm-hmm. framework that composes that transcendent mind that mm-hmm. is that is that is a collection of minds so of course the collective unconscious is essentially the oshkotic records themselves there's no differentiation but pragmatically speaking we can also phenomenologically ascribe temporal unconsciousnesses like the one we're having right now mm-hmm. just by two subjects interacting we've created a unpersonal unconscious between us mm-hmm. so there are many configurations both imminent and transcendental of the collective unconscious in the form of many types of collective unconsciousnesses mm-hmm. and the fundamental one being the mind at large sure which are so that that puts us in the position of can the ego dual mind gain access to whatever um ontic omniscience this mind at large may have that is in us that we are in of and that we definitely have have proof all over the world that there has been access to to transcendent ideas with mm-hmm. mystical experiences psychopathology shamanism um psychedelics um the point to reconcile i think is not uh, a philosophical one in, in regards to what exists what doesn't exist what can we extrapolate from our psychology that might give us some grounding to understand a an abstracted transcendent object such as the collective unconscious but rather what the hell is located in the uh, collective unconscious what territory have we not explored with unknown treasures and artifacts and medicinal plants to bring back to all, to our culture which is this dimensional world and make it better i think there's a utilitarian or at least pragmatic end tallness and we have to send those shamans into those territories for them to bring back the information mm-hmm. and that's precisely the role of the artist the sure. role of the philosopher Mm-hmm. the poet the mystic mm-hmm. when you're in a transcendental state and you encounter your external stimuli which is the environment it's either nature or geometry what i see in you know studies or psychedelic culture is that people would mostly concentrate on the image distortion which is a hallucination but they would never question as to why they would see a certain pattern of geometrical cubes or geometrical a purely aesthetic object yeah yeah with with no other no other meaning behind or, or at least seemingly mm-hmm. in appearance with no other meaning but the object itself so i think the type of discussion that we're having here is one where we still believe that the symbolist approach to aesthetics as having an internal language that is not linguistic is 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 at at play here so uh the symbolists are aesthetes because 
they their their poetic constitutes a uh, a use of of things as such as color or geometric organization as having a pure meaning, which we might call a translinguistic uh, semiotic. Mm. And and so the question here is a matter of, of aesthetics and that aesthetics contain information and that it might as well be, be understood as language because it is read, um, but not at first hand, it's, it's directly intuitive to mm-hmm. Um, that especially when what's used in, in rhetorical forms and painting or even in, the, in, in, in modern poetry where text is rotated and, uh, and aligned uh, in obstructed ways separate from the text. I think that having the axiom of the symbolist, which is that pure aesthetic objects have and contain a fundamentally linguistic uh, energy is 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 a, a good path of investigation but the matter of uh, that, that you're tackling of geometric lattices and, and, and you know impossible geometries within the mind's eye which Nagogia or psychedelic trips can give you is, is particularly complicated yeah so the context being few nights ago, I had a hypnagogic experience wherein, I mean, usually in most of my experiences, I would see geometry, I would see Tetris effects, I would see animals, insects, um, and the background would usually be red, except for the times I would have Tetris effects. Because, so basically what Tetris effects are, is that it takes instances from your working memory and it would implant it into your hypnagogic uh, experience, that is when you're entering your REM stage of sleep, the the very first phase. And so Tetris effects would show you, okay, maybe I was doing something at 4 a.m. in the morning, so you know I would see myself doing it again. And it would take me two minutes to see Tetris effects. It wouldn't intrigue me as much as when I would see geometrical insects, specifically insects and spiders crawling out of corners um, and within a red background. Um, would I don't know if it, it it might you know scare people, but for me it's 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 very interesting because why am I seeing animals? Why am I seeing uh, spiders? But coming back to the geometrical part. I would usually see a start of David, um, you know, ascending in size. So it's as if it starts and it keeps on ascending and you would have like a lot of start of David's just next to each other and extending um, in size. And so I've been thinking about it, reading about, you know, all sorts of geometrical patterns and everything. And Every single time I would, you know, try to, what if geometry is the objective archetype? You know, that's, that's one question that comes, comes to my mind because geometry showing up in the most uh, conscious and unconscious experiences does definitely have something to do with the way we perceive or we live in this reality 
the question is to what degree? Yes. The geometry might as well be the underlying interstices of the universe, as I think Eric Weinstein might agree with from mm. his observer's theory and, and geometric unity. That I think that geometry could explain the framework of reality at a quite a fine definition, yeah, physical level. Mm -hmm. But so when we look at these levels of consciousness and and the levels of information that we can accrue through our images, the question is: to what purpose do we want to put the wisdom that we learn from our inner landscape, from mm -hmm. our in our images that are compasses that, that direct us somewhere. Well, mm -hmm. Where do you want to be directed? What truth are you actually looking for? The truth of knowing exactly what numbers the matrix code is composed out of, or the manual of, of, of living, of being a human being. Mm -hmm. I think that I'm much more interested by perhaps how uh, an image can, can can give us a download of information that has nothing to do with the structure of theoretical physics and instead gives us some sort of instruction in how to live our, our lives better mm -hmm. and how to have uh, existential axiology, how to live the good life, how to build a better ethic, a better character, to know more about oneself. Mm -hmm. I think that is the, the fundamental goal. And, learning about the universe is a perfectly valid avenue of learning of oneself because you are learning of something that you're a part of but how intimate are you to an equation of quantum mechanics you know, existentially to a high degree but poetically existentially or axiologically ex existentially not 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 so much and there's not that much relevance in in your life world um as to whether it is geometry or algebra that explains the theory of everything. Mm -hmm. That is my point of view, which is why I find your your avenue that you take very interesting because it's it would be a Jungian James Hillman psychology of images or imaginal mm -hmm. psychology that assesses images and, and has a therapeutic approach to to the patient. Um, but I'm missing still the pragmatic value of contemplating whether the recurrence of hallucinatory geometries have some degree of, uh, of, of effect in our, in our daily lives. That, that knowledge, it's a question of, of criticizing and, and valuing and taxonomizing and discriminating knowledge no, I mean, that's true. I feel like I take geometrical truth as the truth of the universe, which might be a bit narrow thinking, but I feel like, yeah, we do have the exoteric and the exoteric. But when we take science and we, when we, I mean, particularly when I see geometry on hypnagogic, you know, experiences and and then psychedelic experiences and sometimes even you know, disassociative experiences. It's weird seeing um, geometry and then knowing that geometry is geometry is such a primitive acting like concept because we created it, we follow it, we teach it. 
but we're in it as well. It's it's. But we live it. Yeah. That's the point. Yeah. We we live it. Dimensions compose our visual processes. Exactly, and so, you know, when I see geometry in any of these experiences, it just I keep on thinking, you know, if it, if it is the objective, then maybe we should be investigating that more than theorizing things like you know what i mean because yes we need theory but we also need practice in order to prove the hypotheses we make and so i would usually call you know these uh geometrical hallucinations as being part of the otherly giving it like an esoteric touchdown or whatever you know kind of labeling it there but it's so contradictory because it's geometry and I'm trying to mystify it or, you know, esoterize it or whatever. But that's the thing about, you know, researches with dreams, researches with psychedelics. You have bizarre, you know, bizarre conditions to analyze, bizarre uh, hypotheses to prove because it's like an assimilation of all these different kinds of affective and uh, you know other sorts of responses because there's so much to to be considered but it is so fundamental yet like I think that what you're describing is the fundamental aspect of the symbolic realm which we inhabit as subjects and yeah. so the question of whether these geometric patterns are otherly or not is think a, a bit irrelevant because obviously they are utterly they are alterity they are extimate they mm -hmm. are familiarly unfamiliar why mm -hmm. because they are part of the symbolic order they are a semiotic structure they are translinguistic yet fundamentally semantic mm -hmm. um, uh, not to say that it, it, it has a palpable semantics like, like language does, but it is an informational structure. Mm -hmm. So the to put it as otherly or alien to you is not necessarily extricating it from the subject as a whole. The, the subject can incorporate otherly. That's the whole point of, of the other, that the other is you and you are the other. Mm -hmm. Not only at a fundamental metaphysical idealist level as I was perverting earlier, but at, at a very practical psychological level of, of you incorporating the others and, and that being a functional and essential part of your psychical functioning that the mm -hmm. other exists and has existed and has satisfied your needs. Mm -hmm. The other, the otherly is also the, the mother. It's, it's, it's also physical matter. It's, mm -hmm. it's what is outside of you. Mm -hmm. the the outside is is the extant as well in some sense because it is you and and the reason that it is you is because there's no distinction between you and your consciousness you're not your body nor are you your mind or your personality mm -hmm. you are the dynamic functioning of this body mind organic interface and is there's no distinction between nature and you there's no distinction between the universe and you there's no distinction between abiotic and biotic. The, mm -hmm. the you, we have the privilege as humans of recognizing that we have 
a U, but we we limit our 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 epistemological webs to not encapsulate what the U fundamentally is. That is what is known as the bigger self. I think that is design in its in its uh, most manifested way. And ontologically, you are everything fundamentally, um, epistemologically as well. That that is the pre the precondition for ontology, all of ontology being you, is that you recognize that you are also the producer of all of your ontology at a fundamental level. Disregarding consciousness or unconsciousness, we're out of that realm of conversation. Um, symbolically, regardless if it's conscious or unconscious, any information process is you. And so if you know that part of reality, which is semiotic, which is material reality, exists. We're not saying uh, whether materiality is real or not. It's still part of, of the subject. You are creating it. That is why this subjectivist position feels no allergy to something otherly being so alien from itself that it cannot reconcile as one. We are back to, to oneness. The, the, the subject is, in fact, split mm -hmm. uh, functionally. But organically, it is this becoming assemblage of, of, of many things at once, and it is unified in, in the, the eternality of the present in time, in, in a sense, at least phenomenologically speaking, which is the relevance here. We are transcending mm -hmm. consciousness. We are understanding all sides of, of the semiotic. That is, that is the goal. We are appropriately uh, throwing the net of, uh, of the symbolic onto the real and capturing all that we have to capture. We're hopefully doing all of that, but fundamentally it's, it's the life world that, that, that we were speaking of. It, the, the transcendence doesn't, doesn't matter anymore. Where we can get the, the knowledge does not matter anymore. The, the important part is that, that we do, that we are existential beings and we have a life and that there are plenty of avenues to access uh, all, all of these knowledges, but you know, you create your own value and, and you create your own tools. I think part of the discussion also that we're having is how much should we depend on the tools that others have, have created? Um, but I think starting with the symbolist belief of, uh, of aesthetics being able to have their self-sufficient value, it runs parallel to the existentialist paradigm of, of creating your own, which is fundamentally done through recognition of the subject as as this transcendent hyphen imminent becoming of a body and mind which is unified so uh, ontology is irrelevant epistemology is obvious and and you know action is is what we have to, to do believing that we are free what do you think about healing with creation because like this morning I was reading this, you know, article about at a, at a therapeutic psychological level or at a psychological at a, at a physiological level. level, you know, you heal through creation. So, I mean, there are many angles, obviously, too. Where can we get medicine from? And the medicine man has been commonly known as the shaman. Mm -hmm. And I think nowadays if we're seeing any guide of the tribe that has some sort of wisdom, it's in our therapists. So I think that goes hand in hand 
with the talking care of an adult that is known uh, as one of the, the pillars, or at least the slogans of psychoanalysis originally, that just by speaking, you, you feel better of whatever hysteric symptoms you could be presenting, whatever mm -hmm. psychosomatic uh, symptoms you came with to the clinic. So uh, the power of healing, um, if you're reducing it to uh, the psychotherapeutic uh, medium, I think that it, it's obvious that, that words are magical. And Freud would say that what are words, what are the words that we use in our day-to-day -day basis but watered-down magic? That's because we, we forget that language has tremendous implications in, in the way we create our own reality. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a, a unifying aspect between the avenue of, of creation as such and using language in speech and in, in other avenues between other people intersubjectively, we can also think about it intersubjectively and how can we heal ourselves psychologically through creation and that would be the paradigm of the artist and and the unifying aspect that I was talking about earlier would be the poet that unifies language as such mm -hmm. and twists it to its uh, wit in order to, to supposedly communicate something. Um, so it, it, there's still a dependency on, on the otherly because the symbolic is the other, language is the otherly. True. And language exists because the other exists. And so a poem exists because there is some other that needs to have some sort of reaction to whatever has been written. Mm -hmm. And in the case of the artist, to whatever has been seen in the painting. There's always a demand um, of the other by way of any semiotic projection and materialization into reality by the creator artist or the creator poet. Mm -hmm. Or even the, the creator existentialist. Is successfully fulfilling its potential in, in life and is and is breathing and, and bliss walking throughout throughout his life role. Mm -hmm. I, I go back to that and and perhaps it has um, too much of a an optimistic edge, but an existentialism is compatible with a species of Spinozian acquiescence in which. In the in loving God, you can you can have bliss and, and, and ecstatic divinity uh, as you as you walk through the streets and, and wake up in the morning and do your your prosaic and quotidian lifestyle. Mm -hmm. But the only way to do that is by way of, of changing your epistemology, and and I think that structurally it goes the same with uh, with changing your language. Changing one's epistemology is, is how do you change the way you juggle with your concepts? How do you name things correctly at this point, appropriately tailored to whatever your experience is? There, there, there's no difference there. So and there is also a macro element to creation at an existential level of your own life by way through words in, in the way that you reach at, at conceiving your own life. I think that's an avenue for literally knowing yourself. Knowing yourself is not knowing your preferences or your favorite 
or your favoritisms or uh, all the superlative questions yeah right it's it's learning what your life is what encompasses your life what do you what do you give value to at a mm -hmm. fundamental level what your beliefs are what your actions are how you use your words mm -hmm. i see a major flaw in the psychoanalytic world today i i feel like the psychiatric model is has obviously failed it's always been a failed model but you're equating the psychoanalytic model to the psychiatric model. no i'm saying that psychoanalytic could still be saved but psychiatric is gone or it could be saved you know we still have hopes and and the and the reason why i say that is that you know the heavy use of you know the popular the the whole psycho you know psychology and psychotherapy clinical psychotherapy cbt everything is so popularized now and we have so many lacanian schools so many jungian schools so many integrated you know psychodynamic schools of treating uh all sorts of neurosis through talking and I always doubt the the psychologist or conducting that analytic meeting because it's so popularized. We have a lot of people in this field now. It's almost it's a job. It's a job. And at the most, we have thousands of people going into university to study psychology. Why? Because I want to be a therapist. And do you really want to be a therapist, or you you're there to make the money? Because like. That's what I see the most here. Like when, whenever I would walk into a, you know, a psychological department under a hospital, I would see all these, um, you know, just psychologists, clinical practitioners, whatever. And the way, you know, you're always taught you're supposed to create free association. You're not supposed to push the, you know, push the analyst into far, they always do it because they have a time frame and obviously everything's going to have a time, you know, there has to be a certain time limit set to the analytic meeting because when does it end? Right. But they rush it so much. They don't take their job seriously and everything has this, you know, kind of Freudian connection. Oh, so you, oh, so you're, you know, going through this, it might be because of this Freudian concept. So kind of like choosing the very, like, not you're supposed to. I feel like psychologists are supposed to be as integrative as possible, rather than choosing one single method. So I feel like you know that's quite naive there. And and when you use a certain one model and you try to meet a patient, you don't even know you haven't even diagnosed uh, the person yet, and you're thinking of, okay. He seems to have depression. It could be, you know, whatever. This complex, that complex. And so this is the result. You know, that's what Freud did to a couple of, couple of his patients is that they, they would come to him, you know, mostly war soldiers and be like, oh, you know, PT, it, it is PTSD. But he would treat them as, as, like a, as like a goal he's trying to achieve, as like a thing he's trying to mark off his notebook. Okay, next subject. What are you diagnosing from psychotherapeutics nowadays i see i i don't see pure psychoanalysis in play i see a very fake not not even fake but very commercial very you know 
maybe it's because it it has assimilated with culture, but I don't I don't see pure psychoanalysis nowadays. All I see are therapists sitting having five different, you know, okay, this patient could be this, you know, having generalizations, not truly trying to understand the essence of the person, but you know, picking one scenario and connecting, associating it with the patient's, uh, you know, neurosis, and boom, you have a diagnosis. There you go, and and that's why the psychiatric model has failed, because they would, all you need to do is walk into a psychiatrist's uh, place, tell her, oh, I'm suffering through this, this, this. She's a psychiatrist. She's gonna give you medicines, because that's how psychiatry works. They use medicine to treat you. Or they use you know certain techniques or whatever, but it's 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 very it's like it's 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 a shortcut to uh, relieving yourself. But you know how shortcuts are; they're like drugs. But you you need more. Everywhere bureaucratically speaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I still feel like you know the whole psychiatric model stands on treating uh, the DSM, uh, you know, disorders. With this, with these specific pharmacological medications, but not integrating it with a useful therapy. Because, like, when you imagine giving a patient um, a bipolar patient, let's say, you know, their uh, medications that they need to either cope up with mania or depression. You know, whenever it occurs, be it like you know any kind of personality disorder, it doesn't have to be. Uh, bipolar necessarily it could be borderline personality disorder. You just give them the medicines and you tell them to take it every day at a particular amount of time. Yeah, exercise, drink green tea, but and when and he or she or they or them whatever they keep coming back to you, and you will still keep prescribing. And so when does it end? So you know what I'm saying? That yes, bipolar is a condition; it cannot be cured. Whatever. But you have to come to a certain level of contentment with the subject in order for the subject to feel like, yes, I can either live with it or overcome it because you can overcome it. You just need to get it under control. But so the psychiatric the, model will just... What is the line in between the patient being a money or a cash cow mm-hmm. and the, the psychotherapist doing something of true value? Where yeah, I mean, yes, definitely psychotherapy is the way to go, but psychotherapy could only be psychotherapy if it's done in a very correct way. Like, you know, we were reading Ogden in, in a class before, and so how he talked about taking patients only because he, so he would call up the patient, so let's suppose a patient called him up, and he's like, I, I have this problem, I need to meet you. So he would do like this, uh, consultation call first before the analytic meeting in order to get to understand him a bit so if, if he can figure this guy out or not because if he cannot he's wasting his time and he's wasting the subject's time and money and everything yeah there are many nuances that are unapplied to modern day psychotherapy mm-hmm. it's not taken it's not taken seriously because it's not something new or needing too much innovation mm-hmm. there are i don't think it's a it's a coincidence that, you know, extreme improvements in hyper-specialized fields of psychology are intersecting with this sort of conformism to to not treat, you know, therapies that have a lot of, of, of potential, such as 
psychoanalysis with more with more care. Um, I think that psychotherapy and, and psychology in a practical sense nowadays is akin to the mystical schools of the past and, and the way that the master-disciple relationship worked in, in, in these places. The advantage nowadays is that many of us can participate in a pseudo-priesthoodness, 